Welcome back to Art History Happy Hour. My name is Tina Rivers-Ryan. And I'm Sarah Schaefer. Today we are really excited to address uh, the topic of these immersive Van Gogh installations that uh, have been uh, sort of popping up all over the country. Uh, we have with us a special guest today, Svagacha Chakraborty is going to join us to speak with us um, about these immersive installations from the perspective of not only art history, but film and media studies. These installations, in case you don't know much about them, um, they uh, are basically immersive environments that use digital projections. Some of them also use AR technologies, VR technologies, in order to supposedly bring Van Gogh's works of art to life. And we're gonna talk more about what exactly that means. So obviously, uh, you know, the three of us coming from uh, the you know, backgrounds in art history and film and media studies and visual studies, we're extremely interested in thinking about how we bring works of art, including paintings, to the uh, attention of the public, how we bring uh, works of art to life. And uh, if you, you know, have been reading uh, the critical responses to these exhibitions, which have been published in a variety of places from the New York Times to Art Forum to Artnet to Art News, um, to you know, basically every art magazine has had their take on it. You know that many people in um, the, the world of contemporary art and of art history are extremely skeptical about these kinds of experiences. And we wanted to take a moment you know, with this episode to sort of do what, um, well, I wanna say what we do best, but maybe it's just what we like to do the most, which is to offer some art historical perspective. So today we're not gonna simply be um, you know, describing these experiences and airing a litany of complaints about why they're so problematic, although we'll do that a little bit too, I'm sure. We, we also wanted to, to push beyond that and give a little bit more art historical context for, for thinking about the relationship between works of art and immersive experiences. So as I mentioned, we have a special guest today joining us. I'm super thrilled that Swagato agreed to talk to us. Um, she is currently um, the... Daniel W. Dietrich II, Curatorial Fellow in the Department of Contemporary Art at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. He is also a PhD candidate at Yale University in the History of Art and Film and Media Studies. Uh, he is an Indian American critic, scholar, and curator whose interests range across modern and contemporary art and visual culture. Um, and I know I can just say that I personally have uh, really enjoyed following him on Twitter. And um, although I suppose your Twitter you know, isn't public, so maybe I shouldn't be advertising that, <laughs> but um, I've really enjoyed, um, you know, interfacing with you over the years in person and uh, virtually um, about all things related to art history and film and media. So, um, and I know that, you know, you have a particular interest in these kinds of immersive experiences as well. So um, welcome, Svagato. Before we get started diving into these experiences a little bit more, I wonder, Svagato, if you could just share with our audiences, because they sort of know who, you know, Sarah is and who I am by this point. Um, but if you could share with the audiences a little bit, you know, your relationship to this topic beyond just the fact that you, you know, are an art historian who works with film and media. Thank you, Tina, Sarah. It is wonderful to be here to be a part of this conversation. Um, I have long been interested in what has variously been called cinematic attractions or screen-based art and the intersections of time-based media, particularly the moving image and the built environment. And as it turns out, the historical and geographic scope here is quite expansive. Uh, for example, the use of screens in various constructions of 
immersive media experiences in the West that goes back at least to the 18th century in various forms. I'm sure we'll get into some of that later on. And elsewhere in East, South and Southeast Asian cultures, um, screens were from even older times combined with art and display practices in architectural ways, working to creatively differentiate the visual field. So we'll probably get to talk about that as well. All of which is to say there are rich historical precedents across global visual culture for the screen and assembly image assemblages that we ordinarily associate with installation art or immersive media environments. And the question of what is a screen is open-ended and it just keeps being reimagined and reworked over the history of art as much as uh, popular culture. And that is kind of the historical and critical context that I bring to my work around time-based media and the moving image as a scholar and curator of modern and contemporary arts. Okay, all of that just made me incredibly excited for you to finish your dissertation and like uh, to get your book out there, um, which I hope is coming on the horizon. Um, yeah, what is a screen and how does a screen operate in different historical contexts, different cultural contexts? I mean, super fascinating questions. Um, so, so now everyone can understand why <laughs> we were really eager to have Swagato come and speak with us about these immersive um, Van Gogh experiences. So I, I don't know how much more we need to really go over what these experiences are. Um, you know, I, I, we don't, we're not really here to call out any particular one by name. <laughs> uh, as I mentioned at the top, you know, they are um, usually multi-room environments in which you can see digital projections and also have these AR and VR experiences. Um, in other words, none of these exhibitions are actually presenting original Van Gogh paintings. Some of them include reproductions that are prints on canvas, um, but most of them really emphasize projection. In, in all of these, the, the projections are immersive in the sense that they are on all of the walls and usually is also on the ceiling and the floor. So you're walking into a kind of virtual environment um, in which you are surrounded on all sides by this kind of moving imagery. So uh, that's these experiences in a nutshell. Um, you know, the, the animations, uh, they, um, they essentially took uh, high-res scans of Van Gogh paintings from collections around the world and um, blow them up, uh, crop them out, change their tone, create little digital animations that make it look as if um, sort of individual marks are being deposited, but of course it's sort of digital. Um, and in no way does it replicate the actual process of painting. <laughs> um, so uh, I just want to be clear before we get into it that, you know, I don't think any of us here are really interested in having a conversation about whether these experiences hold up as art per se, because that's not really what they're trying to be. So I want to make a distinction right off the bat between immersive digital art and this kind of immersive digital spectacle. Um, and I'm not saying that art can't be spectacular spectacle, but that it's it's not really, um, you know, these aren't being presented as works of art. They're, they're being presented by corporations. The people who contribute to these are, you know, mostly anonymous, um, just like a sort of team of professional animators. So um, I just want to put aside that question, all right? So we're not talking about these as artworks and we're not evaluating them as artworks because these are not digital art experiences. It's sort of a different thing. I think it's, it's helpful um, before we 
kind of dig into the broader context of paintings and immersive experiences to kind of think about why Van Gogh has been the subject of these immersive installations. And I haven't done a lot of research on this, but it's anecdotally, it's not too difficult to kind of come up with a, a number of factors. One is just Van Gogh is a perennially interesting artist uh, because he has this very dramatic biography, um, you know, dying relatively young, not having financial success in his own lifetime, but then becoming, you know, hugely successful and well-known, also having a very identifiable style and a very evocative style, very vibrant use of color and brushstroke. And there have been some major cinematic representations of Van Gogh in, in recent years. There was the Willem Dafoe one. I'm blanking on the name of the William Willem Dafoe one from a from the recent past, but there was that one. You know, there was a, a while back uh, one of the episodes of the Simon Shama, the Power of Art series on Van Gogh with Andy Serkis playing Van Gogh. Um, and then probably most Importantly, there was the film in um, 2017, Loving Vincent, uh, in which it was basically entirely painted, like it was it was filmed, but then painted over. And so in that case, I think there was an interesting kind of animation and, and um, more kind of immersive uh, representation of Van Gogh's painting in this in the cinematic form. So, you know, he's kind of always part of the art world zeitgeist somehow. Um, and I, but I, I, in my mind, I think that Loving Vincent probably was a starting point for uh, thinking about a lot of these installations. I was just going to say the, the movie you're thinking of is called um, uh, At Eternity's Gate and was directed by Julian Schnabel, who, who is a um, painter who um, came to prominence in the 1980s and then um, has made a number of successful feature films. And I would also just add, Sarah, that before either of these, I think there was a hugely popular episode of Doctor Who, which featured the Doctor bringing Van Gogh a long time after the artist passed away into um, the gallery where, you know, he got to see um, the almost awestruck popular reaction to his painting. I was personally very affected by it. It's almost impossible to watch that clip without tearing up. So that just seems to go back to your point about how evocative um, Van Gogh, the man, the art, all combine into. I mean, and going even further back, I remember, you know, when I was teaching the survey of art history at Columbia with Sarah, the, you know, Lust for Life, the Kirk Douglas film from the 1950s. I mean, this man has been mythologized and mythologized and mythologized, you know, um, so, but I think the sort of interesting thing about these immersive environments, um, I mean, just based on the ones that I, the one, you know, the one that I saw, which shall not be named, and the ones that I've read about is that, curiously, the, they, they foreground biography in a kind of way, but there's not really a sense of his creative struggle like there's a lot of quotations uh, you know um but uh the actual sense of him as being let's say a subject of history right like a sense of his historical context a sense of the artist he was responding to like the way that we normally mobilize biography in art history uh, you know it's a means through which to enter into the paintings and while I think these environments do present some aspects of his biography, although curiously they shy away from 
you know, the question of mental illness, the question of, of suicide, like the sort of details of his end of his life. I think it's sort of like, you know, something that they stay away from for obvious reasons. Um, so there is that, but none of that is presented in a way that brings us any closer to the works. It kind of runs on a parallel track. So I think that, you know, you're sort of encountering the myth of this man and also, you know, who stands in basically is for the myth of artistic genius and for the myth of the tortured artist, which is, you know, one way that as a culture, we sort of imagine what an artist is and doesn't looks like. Um, but it's somehow curiously not even about the art. It's just about the myth. The critic Ben Davis wrote a review uh, or a sort of think piece about these shows for Artnet and, you know, points out that basically what we're seeing here is an encounter not with Van Gogh the artist or even Van Gogh the art, but Van Gogh the, um, the sort of like pop cultural um, uh, meme that the reference point for the images that you encounter in this display is not the original paintings in a museum. The reference point is the poster, the reference point is the wall calendar, right? That you're basically encountering, it, it's like a, a, you know, at a third sort of remove um, that, it, that, that you're sort of encountering the myth of the artist and the myth of the art um, through this rather than um, encountering the sort of the, the artist or the art itself, which, you know, again, I don't wanna um, uh, make too much hay about this because we are not the audience, right? Like art historians are not the audience for this. Um, it's, it's finding a different audience that is connecting in a different way. But again, I hope we'll sort of circle back to that. And I hope, you know, I, I just want to throw in there and then I want to, um, you know, bring, uh, want us to bring Swagato more into the conversation here. But, you know, I always feel the need to, when someone asks about my reaction to having seen one of these things, I always feel the need to give the caveat, like, I don't have any problem with spectacle. I love spectacle. And I don't have any problem with creative ap appropriation or interpretation of works of art. I, you know, appropriation art is some of my favorite stuff. I love teaching that stuff. I don't have any problem with that. Any issues I have with, uh, you know, the one that I went to had more to do with kind of logistics and, and um, what was a certain lack of quality, you know, in the projections, in the reproductions, and the, you know, kind of lack of deeper engagement that by not having is kind of like dumbing it down for audience. I think we can we can expect more of audiences. I think audiences could get more than was actually laid out for them. So, you know, I, I just, I always anticipate that people are going to be like, oh, you're a stodgy art historian who's going to hate it because it's popular. And it's like, no, I don't, I don't dislike it because it's popular. I disliked it because it was, I thought it was badly done and really expensive. Swagato, I'm curious, did, did you see one of these things? In yes, I have. And, um, you know, I shared uh, some of your reservations about um, the level of presentation, both at a technical, technological level, but also at the level of what kind of Van Gogh is being presented to the audiences. I suppose, though, I would say, and perhaps this is drawing upon my background in film and media, that um, I am not particularly worried about the technical um, obstacles because we find this all the time in the history of cinema where at first glance it appears 
that the films of 1900s, the films of the 1910s are hopelessly primitive, so to speak, compared to the spectacle of Technicolor and 5.1 audio, immersive surround sound, etc. Cinema is often mistakenly cast as a narrative uh, of technological improvements over and over towards some apparently as yet unrealized or undefined goal. And so, so my position as far as the level of technological presentation of these immersive experiences, I think they're just going to keep improving. But so on that count, I'm, I'm not too worried about the fidelity to um, the brush stroke or whatever it is that these experiences seem to blow up and magnify and amplify. What I do wonder about though is uh, what I mentioned earlier, which is to say, what version of the artist is being presented to audiences? How is the art, how is the work being contextualized? And here I will say just, you know, quickly thinking about some of the other artists around whom such immersive um, spectacles or experiences have been are currently being and will be constructed in the near future. And some of the names that uh, come up are Cezanne, Van Gogh, there's something about Monet coming to several countries both within and beyond the US in the near future. Um, there is, oh, and I, I must mention uh, the 2016 or 17 similar installation of the Garden of Earthly Delights by Hieronymus Bosch at the Museo del Prado. And it seems to me thinking across these artists that there is a kind of formalism that guides these installations. Uh, in particular, um, it seems that there is something about the painterly mark the brushwork of Van Gogh, of Cezanne, of Monet, I forgot to mention Klimt. It's, there's something about the, the painterliness of the work that becomes an object of fascination for these very, you know, digital experiences. And I wonder what that, what that means in an art historical context. Well, <clears throat> I mean, I thinking again about um, Ben Davis's review of these, that it's it, it's sort of ironic or telling, I'm not sure that, um, that in this moment of emerging from COVID, um, when we've all been, you know, glued to our screens and our screens have been basically, you know, our, our only point of contact with the world when our entire reality has been mediated by screens, that everyone seems to be drawn to these experiences that on the one hand, as you say, fetishize paint, fetishize tactility, fetishize, um, you know, the, the act of mark making, but on the other hand, mediate all of that through the flatness of the screen, right? For all of their like immersiveness, these are incredibly flat materials in person. So all of the projections, like there's not even much texture mapping, like they're all basically just projections flat on the wall um, the one that I saw also used some fancy um, like LED light boxes. Um, so everything is extremely flat and feels extremely screen-based in a way, even when it's a sort of quote unquote immersive projection. So 
you know, I, I, I agree with you that there is this like fetishization of the object and of the mark. I mean, because they keep including these giant um, enlargements, but you know, in the act of enlargement, you actually totally lose the, the specificity of mark making. You lose the texture of paint. You lose the way it responds to like atmospheric lighting conditions or the way that, you know, as you pass in front of it and your body cast shadows. Like, I mean, you just lose all sense of the physical reality, the, the materiality of the paintings. And so, you know, Ben Davis basically says that, well, it's like we want this kind of encounter with the world that's like a real, you know, a real world. But at, we're so acclimatized now to, you know, to, to seeing world through our screens that we're falling back on something that's sort of safe and familiar. Um, so, because I mean, I think it's really interesting to think that museums have reopened, but it's not museums that people are being drawn to right now. It's these digital immersive experiences, I think, that have become these kinds of blockbuster experiences. Although again, it completely sort of inverts or, or pushes at how we think about the blockbuster, for example, because historically the blockbuster was like a unique presentation. It was like something that you would have to fly to go see. Like if you think of like the King Tut show at the Met and kind of set the, you know, the example for this, it was like, you know, once in a lifetime opportunity to go see these things in person. And this is the opposite. This is like, you know, happening in 50 different cities simultaneously around the world. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I agree with you, but I'm also just like, they're so flat, you know, it's like you lose, that's precisely the thing that you lose, like the one thing that it absolutely cannot get in translation. And I think Maya Phillips also wrote about this very beautifully in her review for the New York Times. She talks about going to the Musée d'Orsay and, you know, having to flee in tears after encountering his paintings and how that's never happened to her, you know, before or since. And that, you know, what I, I just want to read actually the quotation because I thought it, she wrote about this so beautifully. Um, but she basically points out that like, uh, you know, attempting to translate, that there's a difference between art that is, she says, conceived to be immersive and art that is strong-armed into an immersive medium. And she says, no matter how many times I tour the chambers, I had the itching sense that it was dishonest to expand a two and a half by three foot painting to fit the horizons of a 75,000 square foot space, right? So what you're losing is the tactility and also the scale and the intimacy. And I think this is something that Sarah and I have talked about a lot is like the importance of um, size and scale to how we experience works of art with our bodies. And so she says it's dishonest, but I wonder you know, it, it's dishonest, yes, but as Sarah said, it's like, you know, art gets appropriated, art gets changed. I guess my question to go back to what you were asking, Spargato, is like, um, you know, what kind of art is being presented here? If like what we love about Van Gogh is precisely his handling of paint as a medium, then what does it mean to encounter Van Gogh where that's exactly the thing that has been lost? Yeah, I mean, you know, I agree with what you're saying about about, you know, I'm not saying we should, I don't, I don't think we should aspire to this necessarily to the kind of this, whatever anyone might consider a perfect replication of a Van Gogh painting. Um, like that's what anyone should aspire to, period, let alone in one of these, um, in one of these experiences, because reproduction and mediation is always going to result in, in, you know, different material and, and experiential um, encounters. But yeah, I mean, it was like the two things that I think of as like quintessentially Van Gogh. And I should say also like, and I, I say this when I teach my classes, like 
I generally don't romanticize experiences of seeing art. Like, I don't have... I, I've never, like, cried in front of a painting. I've never been, like... I mean, sure, I get moved by works of art sometimes, but, you know, that's not why I do what I do. Um, that's not why I teach art. That's not what I like about teaching art or art history. But it's, like, the things that are quintessentially Van Gogh, which is that tactility that Tina brought up, the, the tactility and the vibrancy of the brush stroke. like, those were the two things that fell completely flat in, uh, in the exhibition. And it's, like, if it is about this... I mean, I'm just kind of reiterating what Tina says. If it is about this, like, fetishizing of the mark, then, like, I felt like they did a bad job of doing that. You know, again, not that that necessarily needs to be what happens, but if that's what you're trying to do, it was not effective to me. Although I will say, I mean, those, those was it LED light boxes that you brought up? Like, at the beginning of the exhibition that I saw, and I think Tina saw the same iteration that I did, I was like, um, you know, these... These light boxes had text, they had the quotes and some of the historical context, and then these blown up details. And I mean, they look like back backlit projections that you see in the works of someone of a photographer like Jeff Wall. And I was like, oh, these are actually really vibrant and and kind of interesting. It was just a it was a, a reproduction of a detail of Van Gogh paintings that I'd never seen before. And I was interested in them and it kind of raised my expectations for the rest of it, which were then dashed just kind of as soon as I got into the actual space of it. But um, you know, that was a place where I was like, oh, this makes me look at these brush strokes and this color in in a different way that I appreciated. And, you know, unfortunately it was then covered up by by text. Um, but that was one part of the exhibition that I that I did kind of appreciate and and was interested in in seeing how that could be mobilized in other ways as well. Now that you're talking, Sarah, I just wonder if like context is part of the issue here because obviously like enlargements, reproductions are incredibly valuable, and actually they're like uh, one could even argue that the field of art history doesn't exist without them, right? Like the history of art history basically, you know, begins with like, you know, slide lectures and, and, you know, um, also, with and, you know, like being able to encounter works of art, you know, not in person, but through reproduction. So, so yeah, it's not that in and of itself is a problem for me. The problem was you have these beautiful enlargements of these details, but you weren't shown the painting from which they were drawn. There was like no, like it never zoomed out. It was just a static still mm -hmm. with text overlaid on it. So you never knew which painting it came from. They didn't even tell you the title of the work of art. So it was hard to make sense of like how this particular, you know, couple of inches of canvas that was blown up might relate to something else and thinking about overall composition, for example, or, or about rhythm or, so that was sort of um, part of the problem for me. And of course, you know, on a formal level, it's divorced from context, but as we've already mentioned, it's also like art historically divorced from context. There's no references, you know, to impressionism biographically it's divorced from context you're given a sense of the overall arc of his life but th there's no mapping of the paintings into that because they're all presented in a sort of like out of chronological order and sort of like a kind of flow of information um that doesn't map on to you know anything so yeah it was just like a lack of context throughout but again it's like Sorry, so I, I think it's helpful to go over all of this because I think we are you know for people who haven't seen them we're explaining why you know, okay, so they're not artworks, they're not pretending to be artworks, they're clearly not, you know, art historical, they're not advancing, they're not asking the questions that art historians ask, they're not advancing art historical knowledge, but then the question is, like, why do people love these so much, like, what exactly <laughs> is it that they're providing that's so 
that's so valuable. Um, and, you know, I, that's one reason why I wanted to have this conversation with you guys so that we could sort of, I mean, it's so easy, right, to like, to critique and to nitpick. Um, but if these aren't for art historians, like what are the people, you know, like my neighbors were like texting me, asking me if I, you know, my neighbors were like retired, like, you know, whatever, like they have nothing to do with the art world, but they found out about it on Facebook as I think everybody does basically. I think that's like the marketing budget. And, um, you know, so why would they want to go and what are they getting out of it? And I think that to go back to your point, Swagger too, about like the technical innovation, I think one of the things I actually was frustrated, one of the reasons I was frustrated by the level of, of um, the technology was because all of them think, like all of the people that I talked to who are not in the art world, right? Like family members, like, you know, whatever, friends who are not in the arts. They think this is some like groundbreaking, you know, immersive technological thing. And I'm like, no, literally Disney World is like better than this. Like the one that I saw, the projections were misaligned. Um, the projections were shaking. They hadn't like secured the projectors. And I, I, again, I was trying to tell myself like, not only is this not for art historians, it's also definitely not for digital art curators because the whole time I was walking through and it was just like, okay, you, you know, you've got like the air conditioner vents blowing and drowning out the audio in this corner, you know, like it just, it's a disaster as a digital art installation. But I was like, if that's what the, you know, if they're coming for Van Gogh because they want to have this encounter with, you know, this artist who's known for his handling of paint and the sort of intimacy of him translating his vision through paint, that gets completely lost. And then if they're coming for like a technologically, like, you know, um, sophisticated experience, at least the version that I saw, which did not have the AR and the VR. So I have to say like the one that I saw was like the most sort of technologically simple, I think of the many versions of these that are out there. But I was like, it's not even that, like Disney does better, you know, like this isn't even that, I mean, the digital art installations that I do are like more impressive technologically. So anyway, so, so yeah, just the, the, those, those are sort of my frustrations, but if we want to stop harping on this now, maybe we can sort of pivot into trying to think about the history of the way that works of art have been translated into um, technological spectacles. Um, and then maybe that can help us sort of unlock why, why these are happening and, and why they're so compelling and also to understand that this isn't exactly new. Well, Tina, I think it's so interesting that you, you know, brought up um, two points. One was about the relative lack of technological sophistication, which for you really um, put a dampener over the entire experience, but also the segue into the history of immersive spectacle, immersive media in a broad sense. Um, because for me, it's like, even as I acknowledge and I shared some of your frustrations in the version that I got to experience, uh, definitely the scenes in the work were uh, clearly visible, so to speak. Um, but as a historian of visual culture, it's also apparent that these immersive experiences, immersive environments, find their place within a, a relatively well-recognized and coherent history of immersion that, you know, begins uh, arguably with Edmund Burke's theories of the sublime in the 18th century, which at its most basic involves one's entire sensorium being overwhelmed 
by whatever one encounters. It could be standing at the edge of a cliff and staring down the sheer expanse. It could be confronting an enormous wave that threatens to wash one way. And the sublime is variously encoded from that point onward into any number of popular spectacles. One that I will mention here is the panorama, which becomes incredibly popular uh, in the mid-18th century onward in London and then spreads across Europe, the Americas. And the panorama came in many different versions. Some of them were, were rotating panoramas, others were fixed. But what they all shared was the production and the presentation of a view, a landscape, or a scene, or whatever, that would literally swallow you up. You were inside the image. And I mentioned this because in reading the um, marketing copy of several of these installations, going back to the boss at the Museo del Prado that I mentioned, uh, I quote, totally immersive atmosphere which allows spectators to enter Boss's famous triptych through a perceptual space, a journey through the world, end quote. Um, I mentioned that there's uh, a similar installation of Gustave Klimt um, from the one in Barcelona, quote, step inside the electrifying arch of the rebel artist Gustave Klimt. Um, from the one that's coming to Los Angeles in January 2022, should, and if you want to go by, um, enter the colorful palette of this job, Klimt, step into a wonderland of moving paintings. Over and over, therefore, I see this rhetoric of entering the artwork being rehearsed and recycled. And for me, this, this really, you know, fits into this longer kind of historical lineage of immersion. Step into the artwork, step into the scene, and it goes back to the panorama, it goes back to uh, in the mid 20th century in Cinerama, which was a massive um, triple screen attempt at cinematic immersion. In contemporary contexts, we can think of IMAX, which if you've ever had the fortune or misfortune of sitting all the way up in the front row at an IMAX screening, the image overwhelms you. You lose yourself in the image. And so I wonder what it, what it means to consider this recent proliferation of paintings transformed into immersive environments. I wonder what it means to maybe shift gears and consider them from this broader, more heterogeneous history of visual spectacle and popular culture. I mean, you mentioned Disneyland. So right there is a connection to popular culture. And I wonder if that may open up other avenues of thinking. So uh, the two of you can speak much more effectively to the contemporary context. I mean, I think that's a great question and, and point of, of uh, conversation that Swagato just brought up. Um, I can't speak to the contemporary context as well, but I just, um, I think what you just mentioned about um, you know, Edmund Burke and spectacle coming in the 18th century. I just think that that's um, a really key point to bring up and its relationship also to, uh, you know, to, even though these are 
problematic terms and, and periodizations, you know, the Industrial Revolution, the Enlightenment, where there are these new um, both scholarly and popular engagements with science, with technology, with, pro you know, this idea of progress, of progressing towards something better, more real, you know, more, um, more um, comprehensive, like, it's not a coincidence that the panorama, the di diorama, the idofusicon, magic lanterns, like all of these multi-sensory or, you know, kind of um, uh, visual experiences that aren't just visual, that are also temporal, that, you know, have all these different components. Like this is happening uh, it, at a moment where there is just a, a widespread interest in technological uh, advancement. And I just, and I wanted to bring that up also because when we're talking about art or art experiences that do go beyond just looking at a static painting, I mean, we could talk about examples that go back to antiquity. Like, there, you know, this is not a new phenomenon, even going back to the 18th century. But um, because we could go on, we could all go on for hours and hours talking about these kinds of things we did um, in, in um, preparing this episode, kind of want to, um, we, we all kind of agreed to focus on how the idea of painting and turning tr painting into more of a quote-unquote immersive experience, like tr we're interested in kind of tracing different ways that that has occurred. And, I, you know, I think what, what Swagato brings up about the relationship to the sublime or the emergence of the sublime as this category and the kind of popular experiences that develop in that milieu are a really helpful starting point um, to, to think about what we're seeing now. Um, and there are lots of through lines from that moment in the 18th century to today. I just, I really love this conversation already because um, I think, you know, as you were talking to Argato, I was thinking about, well, yeah, I mean, we can push it even further back. So for example, Philippe Lorenzen, who's um, a art historian and curator of digital art, wrote an article that's sort of obliquely um, about these kinds of Van Gogh experiences. It just touches on them at the end as well as some other contemporary stuff. That's basically about um, the history of immersive things. Um, and he points out that, you know, I mean, he begins his article by talking about a room by Giulio Romano at the Palazzo Te made in the 1520s um, called the Fall of the Giants and talks about how there was this, you know, desire in this moment of mannerism to make these kinds of experiences that would like overwhelm you and that would be totally immersive. And so, you know, reading Filippo's writing, um, you know, pushing this idea of immersion back to the 16th century reminded me of Oliver Grau's book. So Oliver Grau, a very famous scholar of media art, has a book called Virtual Art, where he basically actually goes all the way back to cave paintings <laughs> and, and Gothic cathedrals. And so I love then, Sarah, the point that you bring in, um, because the question then becomes, well, how is what's happening now not like the last 4,000 years of artistic production, right? Like what distinguishes it? Like, is it helpful to think about, I mean, on the one hand, yes, right? It could be helpful. Like Oliver Grau argues that it's very helpful to think about a kind of continuity between um, you know, uh, cave paintings, Gothic cathedrals, Cinerama, and digital immersive rooms. Um, and I think that that's really important as our historians that we should recognize the moments of contact between like, you know, art history and visual culture, popular culture, high culture, low culture, art outside of the Western context. But, but Sarah, your point thinking about 
okay, maybe something different happens though with this moment of the industrial revolution, the enlightenment, these ideas about progress, the demonstration of technology and of science. And I guess my question would then be like, you know, if we are still in that moment in some way, you know, if we're still in this moment of modernity that's been happening now for 300 years, right? If we still are operating under these paradigms of progress, um, and especially understanding social progress as being tied to technological progress, which like, spoiler alert, I think we are, <laughs> um, then um, what is the function of these things today? Like how are they maybe more like a demonstration of electricity um, or, um, you know, proto-cinematic things um, from the 19th century than they are like Gothic cathedrals, right? Like, what is it about, like, what is the role of technology here? Like, is it, is there something, you know, are these works precisely about experiencing the technology more than experiencing the art? And I would say, you know, my gut sense is that yes. And again, that's why I was so disappointed in them in one way. Like I was prepared to be disappointed in them as an art historian. I was not prepared to be disappointed in them as a digital art curator because I did feel that they were so not sophisticated. Oh, the swagger, do I totally take your point that like, you know, conversations about like fidelity and expecting that like work always has to be like at the cutting edge, like that's also problematic. I mean, I'm always reminded of Walter Benjamin's amazing point that like technology is mo most radical in its moment of obsolescence. <laughs> um, so I don't wanna fetishize the cutting edge, right? But I just feel like that's what's being marketed to people that this is some type of cutting edge technological experience, but it's so clearly not. And so I, I think again, back to Ben Davis's point about familiarity in a way, maybe it's the fact that they're not so, um, you know, also cutting edge. You know, I'm thinking, so when I say cutting edge, I'm thinking for example, of like Refik Anadol's work. Like there's a Turkish American artist who makes, you know, who uses projection mapping and does, you know, crazy AI generated stuff and creates these like truly like the kind of thing, you know, to the extent that Sarah and I love spectacle, like we'd stand in front of it, just like mouth agape and totally dig it, you know, like this kind of like, you know, you really just are completely overwhelmed and talk about sublime, you know, like lost in this, in this spectacle that just swallows you whole. Um, but this was not that, like, it's just so interesting that, you know, people talk about, you know, as far as you're pointing out this idea of like being fully immersed. I never felt immersed for a second. Like I, I was either. always aware yeah. of my surroundings. I always saw the entrances and the exits and the walls. And so actually I want to sort of pivot the conversation and ask, you know, something that Filippo actually talks about in his article when he's connecting, you know, these things back to like, you know, Julia Romano's mannerist rooms. He says that the function of these, of immersive spectacle is not just to, um, you know, immerse you and give you the sublime experience. He says, it's about having a social experience. It's about being in a space that you share with others. And so of course then he's actually just um, sort of, I think putting to the side VR works where it's just a headset work and you're not actually in an immersive space with other people unless they're also in that same VR world with you. Um, but his point was that it's social. And so I really got the feeling when I was in this space and I'm just like talking this out loud didn't you know, think it through that people were not being brought closer to the art people were not being shown something that was truly like immersive or, or sort of any kind of cutting edge technological spectacle, but people were being given an opportunity to be in space together and, and specifically as a kind of crowd and to see each other seeing the work and responding to the work. 
And of course, museums have always allowed people to like look at art socially and together. But because of the kind of experience that was on view, um, by which I mean, the work of art was bigger than you. So you could actually in your peripheral vision, see other people seeing like if you look at a Van Gogh painting in a museum, and you're really looking, you have tunnel vision, right? And you can't see the other people around you. But because you were in this space, and the work of art was all around you, you're actually invited to see other people seeing at the same time. And I wonder if that also has something to do with the appeal of it right now, especially post COVID. And Swagajo, I particularly, I don't wanna put you on the spot, but I particularly, given your interest in like screens and architectural space, I'd super love to hear what you think about that. No, it's a, I think it's a fabulous point. And, you know, I was thinking throughout um, what you were saying, and I, I, I kind of want to triangulate what you just said with what Sarah said earlier, specifically the connection with uh, the humane between industrialization and the enlightenment and their legacies, which we are still navigating. You know, the, the fact, you know, that you recognize that it's more about the technological spectacle than the art, but then you, uh, you're pointing out that, you know, you weren't, you didn't feel immersed in any way because the scenes were too visible. It was too uh, crude, so to speak. And it just reminded me at the beginning of the conversation, I alluded to, uh, I think, Robertson's Phantasmagoria of the 18th century, late 18th century. And, you know, so just to describe it briefly, for those who may not know, the Robertson Phantasmagoria took place, it was, it was constructed, designed by Robertson as something between scientific and the supernatural. You would walk through a graveyard and then you would walk through a corridor that was lined with all kinds of macabre medical specimens and whatnot. It was straight out of Halloween. And then you would enter a completely darkened chamber. And Robertson suspended the screen in the middle of the um, chamber and he had coated the screen with lamp black. So you couldn't see the materiality of the screen. There was, you couldn't see the artifice of the screen. And then he would use back projections and moving lenses. So the effect that you as an observer, as a spectator, the effect that you would experience was to have these uh, luminescent ghosts and skeletons and other ghouls rush out of, out, out of you, out of the darkness, loom out of you. And it was this looming effect that was so novel at the time. And people ran out screaming and there was all kinds of stuff. And this ties into what you also said about the sociality of the experience. You weren't experiencing the phantasmagoria alone. You were experiencing it with others who were also as mystified or frightened or whatever as you were. And Robertson's Phantasmagoria uh, became very popular, but it was never the case that people really thought that they were seeing ghosts. They knew that what they were seeing was a technological device, something artificial. And so I remember, uh, you know, when I was at the University of Chicago and Tom Gunning was talking about uh, the Phantasmagoria with us. 
And I remember the exact words he used to just to, to kind of summarize what was going on. I know, but all the same. And this tension between you know it's not actually going to overwhelm you, it's not actually going to swallow you whole, but all the same, you are thrilled by it. You take a kind of, I don't know what the appropriate word might be, I want to say visceral pleasure, something embodied about this uh, sensation. But you always know at a, at a certain level that it's not actually, you're not actually in danger or anything. And this is really a thread in these kinds of optical entertainments uh, that, that try to, I don't know, straddle a line between um, technology and something in excess, an effect that is always in excess of what the technology creates. And, and I, I just can't help thinking about these immersive environments as trying to do that. And maybe they're not quite at that point yet. Maybe the scenes are still too visible. But I think we can be a bit optimistic and say, okay, maybe in five or 10 years time, those scenes will be less visible. And so what I think about is at that point, Tina or Sarah, when we can no longer make that criticism, like, oh, the images were not lined up or whatever. At that point, what do we say about what these spectacles, what these experiences are? Why do people flock to them? What are they going, to, what are they going for? Yeah, thank you for bringing in the phantasmagoria. I think that's a great point of departure. And it, it, while you were talking, it made me think of um, a more recent work of art that I think for me helps illuminate and pun somewhat intended as you'll see why I think someone like me and, and probably the two of you could get um, might get frustrated by these kinds of experiences, which is seeing um, a work like the one that I'm going to bring up and the kinds of questions that can be posed to an art artist or can be posed to audiences with works of art using technology that is not necessarily the most up-to-date. And the work that I'm thinking of is Carol Walker's Darkytown Rebellion, which is one that I, I haven't actually seen in person, but I, I teach it um, every time I teach the, the um, art history survey. It's usually the work I end with. And, you know, I know in some iterations of it, uh, Walker would actually have one of those old school overhead projectors, which by now are pretty pretty much obsolete. You know, I, I don't know if school, I, I always forget to ask my students, like, did you have these growing up in, in grade school? Because we definitely did. But, you know, now we have digital projectors and stuff. And, uh, but the work consists primarily of these, um, and, and the works uh, was from 2001, uh, the silhouettes that she did around that time that would be um, mounted on the wall, and they're representing this fictionalized um, slave rebellion, and the silhouettes have all these exaggerated um, features of these, of these enslaved peoples. Um, but the projector adds these um, kind of um, vivid color effects, and, and part of the, the thing that is supposed to happen is that your own shadow becomes part of the narrative that's being told in this work on the wall. And like, that's a kind of productive, immersive, like really profound, I mean, again, I haven't seen it in person, but I can only imagine the kind of profound immersive experience 
that can be created just through light and shadow and a projector sitting in a, a corner, a kind of, you know, visual technology that it has been updated and is still used in some form, but it itself looks like a relic of, you know, of pedagogy from past eras. And, you know, I don't know, just thinking about something like that. And that's what I was kind of getting at early on, just like, it doesn't have to be the most up to date technology, but like, audiences can be pushed to ask, ask these kinds of questions or have these kinds of experiences that are illuminating and profound and using the kind of what the technological constraints are, or limitations or op as opportunities, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Like, I couldn't agree more. And while you were talking, you were also reminding me, um, you were also reminding me of um, Sandra Perry's use of chroma key blue. So she paints the walls of a lot of um, her installations, including one that, you know, is on view. Um, well, I just installed is on view in a show that will be open by the time this podcast goes out. Um, where you know she paints the walls chroma key blue and part of the reason for the and so chroma key blue is a kind of paint that's basically like a green screen paint it's used in film and, and television production in order to allow you know people to digitally edit in a different background behind actors and so by by painting the walls of her installation that color she's implicating you the viewer as an actor right in the situation that she's describing which is basically you know a, a narrative about the use of technology to further the systemic oppression of black people. So um, it, yeah, it's like using digital technology in order to, as you said so beautifully, Sarah, to sort of, you know, implicate people in a situation in a way that is perhaps challenging. So I couldn't agree with you more, except the problem is, is we already agree that this is not a work of art. Right. right. Like we already yeah. agree that these Van Gogh experiences do not pretend to be works of art. And so it would be supremely unfair for us to like evaluate them as works of art and be like, well, why aren't they posing interesting questions and challenging audiences? And it's like, well, that's not what they want to be. Right. Right. So we're still circling around this question of like, what is it that people get out of it? And maybe actually paradoxically, that's the answer, right? It's that they're not necessarily being asked to think about like their role in the systemic oppression of people in America, you know, since the days of chattel slavery, like you know, maybe, maybe that's part of the answer. And that's also why we have a little bit of an antipathy because we know the potential of these technologies to really stimulate, um, you know, not only powerful aesthetic experiences, but also, you know, uh, really profound conversations. And so it just feels like a missed opportunity, but again, it's like, that's not what these things are even trying to be. Um, it reminds me of a quote. I know you like to bring up Tina from Matisse about, you know, the one that we often problematize about art being a, you know, oh, it should be a warm armchair that you can curl up in and forget about the world. And it's just like, but these Van Gogh immersive experiences are like a really uncomfortable wooden chair. Like they're not even a warm armchair to me. Like, Although I, I do have to say, like listening to Swagger to also made me like want to, you know, add a disclaimer that like, you know, when I say that I didn't find it immersive, like I have an incredible amount of privilege because mm -hmm. I am literally paid to experience immersive art, right? Like somebody pays for me to travel, to go experience like the best immersive art that there is. It's literally my job. And so I have to also understand that for a lot of people, and I do understand, I, you know, I acknowledge this when I, I, the first time I saw the Van Gogh show, I had like an epic Twitter thread and I said, you know, this is not for me. I'm not an art historian. I'm a digital art curator. The technology is not up to my standards, but also I'm not impressed by it because this is, you know, this isn't the first immersive installation like this I've ever seen. Like I know what projection mapping is, you know? And 
So I think that maybe for a lot of people, like the one here in Buffalo, for example, is in the suburban mall. And so for a lot of people, this may actually be the very first time they've ever entered a space that has multi-screen projection. Whereas I literally wrote about multi-screen projections in my dissertation for my doctorate, you know, so it's like. But it's still the people who can spend $40 to go see it. It's not like an, an accessible version of this kind of stuff, you know, like that's, I get what 40, you're saying. You gotta, like you I, a cheap one. Mine was like 60. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. But that's a really good point is thinking about access too, is like what kinds of, you know, I mean, something we talk a lot about in the museum world is like, what is our competition in a way? Like, what what are we offering people and how do we distinguish what we're offering from other kinds of spaces, right? And um, so just thinking, you know, what is it that these people are are hoping to get out of these experiences? I'm glad that, you know, we turned this conversation around to talking about questions about inclusion and access, because for me, it ties both into uh, the question we've been returning to time and again in this conversation, that is, who are these experiences for and who are the audiences, but also turning that around, what is the responsibility that the producers of these immersive environments owe to the public? And uh, I'm glad that you, you know, you both met, you brought up uh, Kara Walker and Sandra Perry. And while we all acknowledge that we are not expecting these spectacles, these um, experiences to provide what a museum would provide, I mean, that's what museums and uh, the academy is for. But at the same time, when I think about the individual artists who have been highlighted so far in these spectacles. So to recap, Boss, Cezanne, Monet, Klimt, um, oh crap, I forgot who we're talking about right now. <laughs> it's hard not to ignore the fact that they're all white European male artists. And what the issue that I have with this is that we are living through a moment right now when there is a widespread reckoning across academic and museum institutions about the narratives of art that we have been telling for a long time. Who is included in those narratives? Who is written out of those narratives? How can we rework those narratives? That is the focus of a lot of the critical work that scholars and curators and pretty much everybody else engaged in whatever capacity in the artwork, that is the responsibility we are carrying right now. And so I do find it a bit disturbing that right at this moment, we have this form of popular spectacle that comes along. And I am all for a popular spectacle because they reach large audiences, but I am uncomfortable that they are sort of reinscribing a narrative that is not too far from the singular white male artistic genius narrative that we are trying to get away from. So this is an issue that makes me very uncomfortable at this time. And I know it connects back to the kind of lack of critical focus in these spectacles. And that is something I would really hope changes down the line. 
but for the moment, it, it, it is something that must be remarked upon. This is like the third time that uh, I've sort of wished that we released a video version of this podcast because Sarah and I were just silently, emphatically nodding along during that entire, and I didn't want to interrupt you with like, you know, my like, uh, like guttural sounds of approval, but absolutely. Um, I mean, it's such an important question. And again, you know, it goes back to this question of, you know, okay, well, it's a, it's a comfortable armchair. It's about offering something that's sort of familiar, you know, that people find palatable. We know that, you know, these exhibitions of impressionism, even Picasso, like all of this art that would have been radical and incendiary in its own time has now become the new academicism. Um, and I, I just think that, I mean, you're very generous, Margato, in, in saying, you know, okay, well, these things aren't coming from, you know, the academy or from, you know, the, the art world, from the museum world. So they're not part of the reckoning that's happening or that conversation, or they don't have that level of, of criticality or self-reflexivity. But even putting aside, like, you know, the academy and the museum world, in pop culture in general, we're having those conversations too. I mean, we're having, you know, I mean, if you can have hashtag Oscar so white, we should definitely be having the conversation about why is it that these immersive environments, even if they're not art and they're just pop culture, right? Why are these immersive environments so, you know, white, so male dominated, right? Like why, why, why is it, you know, and we know, we know the answer, right? It's because none of these immersive environments are valorizing or presenting the work of anyone who hasn't been dead and famous for a hundred years. And the only people who were famous a hundred years ago, you know, got to be famous a hundred years ago were the white male artists. So I think, um, you know, perhaps, I mean, we know that obviously these are commercial enterprises, although I shouldn't say, again, who is the we here? We, meaning the three of us on this call know that, but my neighbor, again, it's like, you know, Sarah, you were talking earlier about how like people thought that there would be works of art on view. It's because they use the word exhibition. It's like yeah. the same problem with the museum of ice cream. Like I'd be, far less upset about it if they just didn't use those words because it muddies the water it muddies the waters it it primes people to expect certain kinds of things then when they come to see our exhibitions and museums and that's like profoundly unfair in a way um but yeah I mean my neighbors didn't understand that this wasn't like a museum presentation like I mentioned it's a for-profit entertainment company and they were like oh we thought somehow it was like benefiting the arts or we thought somehow it was like this educational and I was like no 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 this is like a new this is like a movie theater or something you know this is nothing it's totally commercial no nonprofits benefiting we're not benefiting like we actually have we meaning the museum I work for like we actually own Van Gogh's and you know we're not benefiting in any way from this and they absolutely did not understand any of that and I think that this has got, I mean, to be completely cynical, right? And like anti-capitalist, um, what a surprise. Um, you know, this has to be very deliberate in a way. It's deliberate obfuscation, right? On the part of the people who are organizing these things that they, they mobilize the language of exhibition. They, you know, they mobilize art, you know, in, in a way, you know, just to sort of draw people in and make them think they're having, you know, one kind of experience and another. And again, I think part of my frustration is that, you know, when people then come to our exhibitions and are presented with a very different kind of experience, right? That just becomes, it just becomes harder for us to do our jobs, right? And to present and to message and to prime people for the work that we do and the kinds of experiences that we're gonna offer, right? Um, but yeah, what do they get out of them? I mean, I'm still, I feel like I'm still circling around this question. I, I, I guess it's just, you know, they really, um, 
I think for most people, it's just a really novel form of entertainment. I'm surprised that it's worth $60 to them, like per person. Um, but I think maybe, again, we have to sort of, you know, historically contextualize and just say that, you know, these environments, yes, they are appearing in places like New York City, but they're also appearing in places like Buffalo. They're also appearing in places that historically have not been served this kind of entertainment before. Um, and we also have to understand that these experiences have completely exploded in the wake of COVID. And you know, having a kind of social experience, having a kind of physical experience, a kind of outing again, you know, that there's a certain value to that. I mean, two sort of notes of, of charity slash optimism. I mean, the the final note I've said when when you know asked about my feelings on these on these um, Van Gogh experiences is like you know if it gets one person like interested in wanting to go see a Van Gogh painting in real life, great, you know that's fantastic. And in terms of the conversation around the canon and how this perpetuates this, you know, dead white male canon of art history, I will say, and it, you know, it, it always feels like a bit of a cop out to say, like, things are getting better. But I mean, from my experience, just really just like in the wake of, of the George Floyd protests and all that, like, you know, it, it, it forced me to reckon more with like how I teach the survey and I still feel the compunction to kind of justify, like, why I'm not spending as much time on Michelangelo, uh, you know, because I want to devote more time to artists outside of the canon. And I actually, and I've realized, like, oh, I don't need to make that justification to these college students. Like, they get it. And they they want those differing narratives. And, like, that that gives me a sense of hope of how things are going to change. And unfortunately, it's just going to take time. So when we were initially talking, you know, the three of us about recording this podcast, I think Swagerto put forward this question, which he's already brought up, but I just want to put a little more emphasis on it, which is like, what would a version of these look like that, you know, some future version of these look like, these immersive experiences that would be like, I don't know what word I want to use, like redeemable, interesting, like for us, right? Just, just for the, like, you know, for the particular audience of the people who are, you know, on this call right now, let's say. Um, who are listening to this podcast. Or who are listening to, oh, I don't want to make presumptions. Right? Yeah, yeah. Audience. But, um, you know, so I think one obvious answer then would be, uh, well, there's a couple things. So one would be like, you know, actually delivering on being more technologically sophisticated. Another answer would be um, presenting a more diverse, you know, roster of artists or encouraging people to think about a more expanded canon. Um, Another answer would be, I think for me, like, you know, bringing in more context and understanding and helping people, you know, understand both like art historical context, biographical context. I mean, Swagato, I thought your point about how these are formalist is like, was so interesting because it really is just like fetishizing. It's this idea that like one can understand the object like uh, immediately and directly without any sort of like exegesis, any mediation, which is ironic because of course they're totally mediated through technology, but the idea that like the, the meaning of the work is somehow like self-evident and that you don't really need much beyond, you know, whatever. Um, so, uh, you know, thinking and like, yes, fine. Like, but even as formalism, they're bad, right? Like even as formalism, like they offer enlargements but they don't actually uh, do the work of formalism of like, you know, connecting the details to the production of meaning, like it actually interpreting like what you're seeing um, because there's a lot of text, but all of it's basically descriptive or like excerpts from his letters or whatever, but there's like no like wall labels that would actually make you think about 
meaning or like why the work looks the way it works. It's also interesting to think about the constraints, about the way in which these things look the way they do because of the audiences that they're serving. I mean, obviously they're, you know, the agendas of the people who are producing them, which is to maximize profit. It's not to educate, that's for sure. It's not to help, you know, funnel people into museums and into a love of art history. Although, as Sarah said, I'll take it. I'll be very happy to take it. But again, my concern there is like, yes, like maybe there will be those people who will come to the museum and like fall in love with the real thing. But maybe there will be those people who come to the museum and are underwhelmed, who are like, oh, I thought it would be bigger. It's so small, you know, or, oh, it doesn't move or, oh, it's only one of them. And I mean, this again is Maya Phillips has this amazing point that like animating Van Gogh's paintings implies that they weren't already alive and breathing. And that is precisely the beauty of Van Gogh's brushstrokes, right, is that they already are almost like animate, you know, objects like there's already a kind of life force to them. Um, and so I wonder if you see the digital version first, it makes it harder to see that in the originals or does it make it easier? I don't know. I think this is, you know, uh, a question without any definitive answer. And I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want there to be a definitive answer to this because while I'm not a cheerleader for a cutting edge uh, technology by any means, I'm also not from the very beginning against it. And so I'm, I am with Sarah here in the sense that if these spectacles compel more audiences to go and seek out the artworks that are being remediated in these environments, then so much the better. But then I also acknowledge that your concern is entirely valid. I remember seeing the Mona Lisa in so many different ways, uh, in movies, uh, in my art history classroom, where I would look at online digital um, enlargements. And then I finally got to see it at the Louvre and it was underwhelming. And that had to do with the conditions of display. It is sealed off within this thick glass box and it is very small in person. And, you know, I had, a, I had a conflicted reaction at that moment because I felt a sense of intimacy with the work. I was like, oh, wow, it's so small. And I wished I wanted that I could be up close to the work because it seemed to call for that kind of intimate encounter. But of course, there was no way that was going to happen because it's one of the most famous paintings in the world. So I don't, I think this could go either way. I think that a digital installation of painting that can do, that can somehow convey the embodied experience of beholding that painting. And to be clear, these installations do not yet do that. But I would like to think that if we get, if and when we get to a point where these installations can convey that experience a bit better, it is possible that they may um, push audiences toward engaging with the actual work. But then on the other hand, maybe that's not the goal here. Like maybe that is not what we should expect from these environments, from these spectacles to whatever they are. 
maybe they can just remain popular entertainment, popular spectacle um, attractions, really. Um, and in that case, my only uh, pushback would be that they have to get away from reinscribing a canon that they're doing right now. And I just want to add one more point here because I think it goes back to Sarah's point about industrialization. There is a way, and maybe I'm, I'm wrong about this, but there is a way in which the work of Van Gogh, the work of Monet, the work of Klimt has, has become so commodified in popular culture, in commercial context, that, I mean, I'm pretty sure you can find Gustav Klimt pillowcases at Urban Outfitters, and you can find mugs of Cezanne at museums. And it's like, there is something about the commodification of the formal characteristics that we associate with these painters that allows them to become portable, that allows them to become commodities on their own. And so you have these um, environments and installations right now that are kind of capitalizing literally on that commodification. It's like, we know a Cezanne the moment we see it. We know a Van Gogh the moment we see it. It's easy to translate. And I think large audiences are capable of recognizing, oh, this is a Van Gogh, just by looking at the brushwork. And I think that's part of what is driving the current trends. And I would like to see that change. Yeah, and, and you know, I think it's important to acknowledge um, the way in which museums themselves are in a sense reaping what they sow here because museums themselves have also been um, complicit in that kind of commercialization. <laughs> um, but there was something else that you said, I thought you were gonna take in a different direction. Um, you know, you, when you when you hearken back to, to Sarah's point about industrialization, it dawned on me that all of these artists, not all of them, so not Bosch, right? But uh, somebody like Van Gogh is actually responding to industrialization in their art, actually. And so it's, I want to say it's weird, but it's actually completely expected that, um, that that has been lost in translation, right? The way in which Van, Van Gogh's work itself is a response to the pressures of a rapidly modernizing um, culture and economy and way of living. I mean, every, you know, I mean, just, you know, thinking about, you know, his history, you know, as an art dealer with his brother and like this you know, idea of commerce and art and commerce and about the changing function of art in society. and. You know, it's like all, it's so fascinating. Like that would have been a, such an interesting conversation for these things to have. But of course, again, you know, they're not, they're not for us. And so they're not, they don't want to have the conversations that we want to have. Um, but yeah, it, it'll be, it, it just seems like such a missed opportunity. I mean, Klimt, I mean, my God, like, let's talk, especially now in this moment of COVID, like, let's talk about anxiety. Like, let's talk about the anxieties of modern life. Let's talk about anxieties about intimacy. And, you know, like, let's, let's talk about that. But mm, nope, you know, it's like, oh, pretty colors. And, um, you know, but I think this also comes down to what I have called, you know, profound misreadings of works of art in popular culture. And like the art historian in me wants to call it that. The visual studies scholar in me is like, there's no such thing as a misreading, there's only a reading. Um, but, you know, 
this this idea that I don't know that that you know that, that these works are about something that they're not basically right that these works are not about um, or that don't respond to or don't carry within them like anxiety. I mean, I guess you know now that we're talking about it, it's like something else that I thought was missing right from all of this is the they animated his mark making, but there was no sense of the the kind of stress or anxiety either that drives the artistic process or that he himself experienced because of his own personal conditions or you know the society in which he lived it's like especially given that they're time-based and there's this restless movement like normally in art when I encounter a sense of restless movement I imagine tension and the expression of a kind of internal turmoil I mean hello Jackson Pollock right and this was, you know, I'm, now that you're, sorry, I'm just thinking through out loud, but like, it was amazing because there was movement, repetition, but there's no subjectivity here. There's no interiority. There's no psyche. It was just movement for the sake of movement, you know, and maybe that kind of repetition without any compulsion, you know, like without any interiority, any subjectivity, it's just the machine, the machinic unconscious, you know, just like driving these things forward. Maybe that's also part of the, um, the appeal, actually. Well, I think we all agree that we could just keep talking about this forever. Um, this is already going to be a much longer episode than the episodes that we've been recording as of late. Um, but I, this has just been absolutely informative. It's been a great opportunity to think through these things out loud with both of you. I respect both of you so much and I really appreciate the podcast is just kind of an excuse in this case to, well, our podcast is always an excuse for me and Sarah actually to talk and hang out and talk about art, which is like what we did for very long time when we lived in the same city and now we just do it through zoom and let other people listen in i guess kind of um but it's been really great Sagata, to have you join us um and to have this conversation and yeah i mean we're not gonna um come to any any answers um quite yet i think Sagata, as you sort of mentioned to us at one point um today that you know the, these questions are not going to be resolved quite so easily but it's not so much about questions right i guess it was also I framed that wrong. It, it, it's you know more about trying to sort of do a deep dive and understand what exactly is going on here with these things. So I think the, the conversation was probably a little bit more critical than I thought it was gonna be at the outset. Um, I know I said we weren't going to just rehash all of the criticisms and then I kind of wound up you know continually rehashing all of my criticisms of these kinds of things. But I, I hope that there was something in there that's really been helpful for you, our listeners, um, to think about the history of these experiences and also the politics of them and, and you know, the way in which you sort of think about the, the audiences that they're designed to serve and the aims that they're, they're setting out to achieve and how those can be fairly criticized. So thank you, Swagato, again so much for joining us. Yeah, and if people want to learn more about you and your work, uh, where should they go? Well, first of all, thank you both, Tina, Sarah, for inviting me to be a part of this conversation. Um, I have followed your work for quite some time, and it's just been an absolute pleasure being here today to think about all of this through with both of you. Um, if people want to know more about my work, they can go to my website, lookoutyourjackaburdy.com, or just reach out to me via email. It's on the website. Great. Thank you. If you'd like to learn more about any of the materials we've discussed in this episode, please visit our website, which is arthistoryhappyhour.com. There you can find a link to our Patreon page by becoming a patron. For $2 a month, you get access to our scene series in which we discuss the appearance of art in movies and TV. 
You can email us at arthistoryhour at gmail.com and you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at arthistoryhour. Thank you.